Awesome. Okay, so uh, if you have not been with us for the last few weeks, uh, we mentioned this a little bit already. We're in a series entitled Credo, uh, where we're focusing on five fundamental things that we believe. And uh, two weeks ago, Pastor Randy started out this new series, and he was talking about how we can believe in, in truth and, and absolute truth. That is to say, we can say that something objectively, fundamentally, for all time is true. And increasingly in the world, that's not necessarily uh, the way people think. They think, well, I've got my version of the truth, or your version of the truth, or what is truth? And people have been asking that question for for all of history, uh, but what we know and believe to be true is that in Christ and in Scripture and in God himself, we can find uh, fundamental, historic uh, things that are absolutely true throughout space and time. So if you're curious more about that, you can go back and watch it on our YouTube channel or on whatever place you listen to for podcasts. Last weekend, we took it one step further and we talked about the existence of God and how we can see from his fingerprints uh, throughout all of the world uh, signs and evidence that God exists, that he is real. Okay? And this weekend, we're going to get even a little more specific and we're going to be wrestling with the question about who Jesus is, specifically an individual known of, as Jesus of Nazareth, and, and we're going to wrestle with the truth claims that he says he is truly God. Okay? And, and knowing the person uh, and the words and the ways of Jesus is, is at the center of our faith as Christians. So this is a super important one to be clear on. In fact, this morning, uh, some of you, like me, uh, use the Bible app. Uh, after the last service, someone asked me this. Um, uh, what version is that again? It's the version Bible app, Y-O-U version Bible app. You can get it on for free on any app store. And they have um, the verse of the day every day. And then they have like a little video that they've added in the last few weeks. And this morning, uh, the verse of the day was uh, from Romans uh, chapter 10. And it says this, uh, if you to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay? And, uh, and then it goes on and it has a video by this scholar uh, from uh, Durham in England. His name is N.T. Wright. He's the Bishop of Durham. And he's just a brilliant theologian, prolific author, one of the smartest guys in the 20, 21st century. And by the way, he has just this amazing British tone to his voice. So I was listening to this morning and Sarah's like, I could just listen to that voice for forever, right? So if, if that's interesting to you, I encourage you to check it out on the YouVersion Bible app. Uh, it's a great little introduction to, to that core passage about uh, believing in our heart that Jesus is who he says he is and being able to confess it with our mouth to declare it publicly, I believe this, is at the center of what it means to be saved. And, and what he explains is if it's not true, if, if Jesus isn't who he says he is and can't do what he claims to do, then it's a, the most ridiculous thing to say that Jesus is truly God. But if it is true, then it matters uh, massively for who we are and what we do as, as his followers. So we're going to wrestle with this fundamental aspect of our faith uh, about how Jesus is truly God. And we're going to do so by trying to go down two lanes, you might say, two paths. The first is, if it's true, what Jesus says and claims, we should expect evidence from secular sources outside of the Bible. So we're going to look at that here first. And then secondly, we're going to come back to it in the second half of my message. We're going to see evidence for this truth claim throughout all of Scripture. 
And so we're going to look at some examples of, of that. And hopefully then by the end, tie it together and give you increasing confidence in, in who Jesus is and what he has said that he can do. And as you see on the bottom of most of these slides, you'll see the number for our Q&A uh, texting number. You can use that number to text in prayer requests, God sightings, and questions. And I'll take as many of them as I can after the message. Okay? So let's start with the, the evidence from secular sources. Some of you have, may have heard of the name Flavius Josephus. Uh, he was a Jewish man uh, who sought to write down the history of Israel uh, shortly after the life and the time of Jesus. He was not a Christian, but he was familiar with Christians and with the stories of Jesus. Uh, he was friendly with the Romans, and so he had their blessing to try to write down uh, an authentic history of the Jewish nation. Uh, Antiquities of the Jews is one of his works. And in that work, he wrote uh, a certain passage which has become one of the most well-known passages in antiquity from a secular source, he was not a Christian, uh, describing the person and the life and the works of Jesus. Here's what it says. About this time, there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was one who performed surprising deeds and was a teacher of such people as accepted the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Christ. And when upon the accusation of the principal men among us, Pilate had condemned him to a cross, those who had first come to love him did not cease. He appeared to them, spending a third day restored to life, for the prophets of God had foretold these things and a thousand other marvels about him. And the tribe of the Christians, so called after him, have still to this day not disappeared. Now, this is referred to in a, in a, a cool Latin phrase. It's called the uh, uh, Testimonium Flavium, named after Flavius. And that just is how cool Latin sounds. But um, it's, it's one of the most well-known descriptions of Jesus in antiquity. And it's also one of the most disputed. And the reason is this. Uh, historical scholars, for the most part, pretty much everybody agrees that, that along the way, Christians added some embellishment, you might say, to what uh, Josephus originally had written. So let me show you a couple examples, going back to the first part. Uh, this passage, if indeed one ought to call him a man, seems a little bit uh, like high praise to come from a secular Jewish historian. Or, or the phrase, such people as accept the truth gladly, seems to be a pretty favorable description of Christians. Or, or even, and this is really clear, he was the Christ. Right? It would be really surprising for a Jewish historian uh, after the time of Jesus to simply say that he was the Christ. Or in the second half, uh, he appeared to them spending a third day restored to life. It seems to be pretty specific about the resurrection of Jesus, which in the secular circles would have been at least disputed whether or not it happened, uh, and, and a thousand other marvels about him. Pretty glowing praise. So most historians would say that sometime later on, some Christians got their hands on this and maybe added a few flourishes. But, but let me suggest this. Even if you strip all the ways, those away, uh, most historians agree that at least part of this was original to what Josephus wrote. So taking away everything else I put in bold, here's what we see. Uh, a few decades after the life and time of Jesus, not even a hundred years, uh, a Jewish historian writing for the Romans says that there was a guy named Jesus. People knew him and they thought he was a pretty smart guy, a wise man. He, he did surprising things, miracles, and was a teacher. He, had a, he was a rabbi with students. He won over many among the Jews and the Greeks and others as well and went upon the accusation of the 
chief leaders of the Jewish religious establishment. Uh, he was killed. A guy named Pilate was part of that. And, and there were Christians named after him that existed stubbornly still to that day, and in fact, all the way down to today as well. Right, so this is one of the, the first places that most people go when they look at what's the historical evidence from secular sources about Jesus, but it's not the only spot. Here's another example. A Roman historian, not Jewish, not Christian, Tacitus says in the annals this, Christus, uh, from whom the name Christians had its origin, um, and he's about to describe Jesus, but it's in the context of describing how the Christians were being violently persecuted by Nero uh, in Rome uh, during a time where Christians were under immense persecution. They were being crucified publicly in the streets. They were being covered with tar and set afire to light the streets at night. Pretty horrendous things. But, but in describing that historical event, he also points back to the historical person of Jesus. Uh, known here by the Latin Christus. He suffered the extreme penalty. That's a technical term in Latin of that era for crucifixion. So it's saying Christ was crucified during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. And then he goes on to say Rome is like uh, we'd call it like Sin City, like all the worst in the world end up finding their way there, okay? Um, so Tacitus seems to be convinced that this individual known as the Christ was killed by public execution through crucifixion during the reign of Tiberius the Caesar when Pontius Pilate was the procurator in that time, okay? And then this mischievous superstition is that he somehow or another rose from the dead. Now, we don't have time to look through all of these kind of examples, but there are plenty of them. Here's just a quick list. Thanks to Pastor Randy, by the way, for passing it along to me. Saved me a lot of time to kind of assemble this. It comes from a work by Geisler and Brooks about how we can answer skeptics, okay? Uh, Thallus in AD 52 noted that Jesus existed. Phlegon, a few years later, that he was virtuous. Josephus, we heard from already, that he was worshipped. The Talmud, which is the, the, the description and maybe the devotional work around the Old Testament uh, from Jewish uh, rabbis, noted that he had disciples. Tacitus, that he was a teacher. Pliny, that he was crucified. Trajan, that his tomb was empty. Hadrian, it, because it was said that he was resurrected in Suetonius a few years later, that news of this just spread far and wide. Another historian used to work at the University of Miami in Ohio, Dr. Edwin Yamauchi, studying all of this evidence from the secular sources. He summarizes what we can conclude from, again, all of these sources that aren't the Bible in this way. Jesus was a teacher from Nazareth, and he lived a wise and virtuous life, he had enemies who admitted that he did unusual feats that they attributed to sorcery. He was crucified in Palestine under Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius Caesar during the time of Passover and being considered the Jewish king. He was believed by his disciples to have been resurrected three days later and had a small band of disciples that multiplied rapidly, spreading as far as Rome. And these disciples denied polytheism, the worship of multiple gods, and they lived moral lives and worshipped him as God. Now, as you look at that description, you're like, that's amazing, because that's kind of the essence of our biblical faith from Scripture and what's reflected in our creeds. And, and what we're saying is that that 
is all uh, discernible from secular sources in history dating back to the first and second century. Um, Another scholar and historian, you may know him also as the author, H.G. Wells. He wrote the book, The War of the Worlds. Uh, He was not a believer, but here's what he said. I am an historian. I'm not a believer. But I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. See, he's a pretty good writer, right? (laughs) Pretty cool words. Um, Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. Now, during uh, your lifetimes, maybe you've noticed like I have, um, sometimes it seems like secular society is trying to scrub Jesus from from history, maybe trying to to, to downplay his significance. And and they did that one way by shifting the two letters we use when we we describe dates from B.C., before Christ, and A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord, to B.C. and B.C.E., or sorry, C.E. and B.C.E., before the Common Era, and the common era. You guys, you're familiar with this. I'm not all that worried about it, frankly, because I know the way the world is going, first of all. And second of all, we're still dividing all of human history around one individual in his life and his teachings and his impact. We just can't get away from that. And most of the, the Western world, in fact, perhaps all of the world today, still divides time, like H.G. Wells is referencing here, around this fascinating individual Uh, whose history is undeniable, and whose impact is global and spans space and time. So, uh, summarizing then what we've just seen, uh, if we look at the secular sources, we can see that it can't be denied that Jesus existed, that he did amazing things, performed miracles, had disciples, was killed for it, and on the third day, it's at least claimed that he was raised from the dead, and his disciples were willing to stake their lives on that and continue to to this day. Now, why would they do that? Well, it's because they had spent time with Jesus. They had heard what he had to say, and they also saw how it came as a perfect fulfillment of all that God had promised throughout the scriptures. So to look at our biblical evidence, I want to start with some of those historical prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus. We can't possibly go through all of them. And if you want to take a screenshot or if at home, if you want to screen grab this, you may want to do that to note some of these references or just shoot me a text or email later on in the week and I'll send you what I've got. But, but I'm just listing for you a number of the prophecies from the Old Testament that were directly fulfilled in Jesus. So first, that he descended as a seed of Abraham, Genesis 18, was, is fulfilled in Jesus. Galatians 3 tells us that. That he comes from the tribe of Judah, one of the sons of Jacob. Nate later changed his name to Israel, Genesis 49. That's fulfilled in Matthew chapter 1. That he was born in Bethlehem, Micah chapter 5. Born of a virgin, Isaiah chapter 7. That he fled with his family to Egypt, Hosea chapter 11. That he did ministry in Galilee of all places. That he was a, he was a prophet that was promised. And, and Moses noted that in Deuteronomy 18. That he would be rejected by his own people was foretold in Isaiah chapter 53. But it keeps going on. Here's just a few more from the final week of his life. His triumphal entry into Jerusalem is foretold in Zechariah chapter 9. That he would be betrayed by a close friend is suggested in Psalm chapter 41. That he'd be sold, and get this, exact amount and exact kind of coin for 30 pieces of silver was was prophesied in Zechariah chapter 11. That his hands and feet would be pierced. That the soldiers would cast lot for his clothes. That not even a bone in his body would be broken. That was foretold in Psalm 34. 
And, and just as an aside, in my Bible reading right now, I'm going through Exodus and the Passover lambs also, not a single bone in their body was to be broken. So even before the Psalms, that was prefigured in the Passover instructions for God's people. That he would be buried in a rich man's tomb, Joseph of Arimathea. That his resurrection would follow. That his ascension would return him to the heavenly places. These are just a, a few of dozens, literally dozens, of direct prophecies about Messiah that were filled specifically in Jesus. Now, some Christian mathematicians um, uh, sought to try to figure out, okay, what's the likelihood mathematically um, for this to actually happen, that one person in history would perfectly fulfill dozens of prophecies that were given over thousands of years by several different people exactly in one person? Right? And, and here's what they came up with. They said that the likelihood of that happening would be similar to filling an NFL stadium with a dome on it. So to give you an example, I found this one. This is a cool one that's in California, SoFi Stadium. I picked this one, by the way, because I'm hopeful that in a few years, about two miles in that direction, there'll be a cool new stadium that'll be similar to this. I don't know if that's going to happen, but I'm, I'm hoping, right? And um, I think the Bears lost the other week down in the Rams stadium. So, uh, so ignore the Rams stuff, but just imagine this stadium filled to the top with sand, right? Millions and billions and quadrillions. It's actually uh, the, the, the mathematical number here is 1 to the 10th by 76 or something like that power, just like 76 zeros uh, after the 1. Um, it would be equivalent to filling that kind of stadium with sand and then randomly choosing out of all those grains of sand the exact right one, uh, not just once and not just twice, but at least three or four times. Right? That's how unlikely it would be that that one individual in history would perfectly fulfill all of these prophecies. And yet what we see in Jesus is that one after the other after the other, um, he fulfilled all that God promised. Now, some of you may say, well, maybe he did a little kind of creative editing of the promises. But, but keep in mind, uh, the Old Testament that we're talking about was already firmly established and widely spread hundreds of years, sometimes thousands of years in certain parts of it before the time of Jesus. So he didn't have a chance to go back and kind of edit it to fulfill what he promised, right? And, and remember, he was a illegitimate child of an unwed teenage mother from a backwater town uh, who had no job, who had, uh, uh, when he was doing his public ministry, no place that he could call his own. Uh, he um, and he ended up getting killed for what he came and said to do. The likelihood of that kind of individual perfectly fulfilling all these promises is virtually zero. And yet in Jesus, that's exactly what happened. Now, that may all be fine and good, but let's take a look also at what Jesus claimed about himself to see how this ties together. John chapter 4. Do you remember he was uh, with a woman by a well, a Samaritan woman, and they were talking about some things, and, and, and this is where the conversation went. The woman said, I know that the Messiah, the one that was promised, you know, all those prophecies, the Christ, uh, that's the Hebrew and the Greek versions of the same word, the anointed one, that he is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus responded, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Right? Jesus is claiming here that he is the one specifically that fulfills all of those promises, the promised one. Later on, he said something very similar. He was being tried by the Jewish leaders, and in Mark chapter 14, it's recorded that the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One, a reference to God? And Jesus said, I am. 
and you will see the Son of Man. He goes even further. Not only is he the promised Messiah, you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. He was claiming to be equal with God himself and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the priest then tore his robes and said, why do we need any more witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. Why would they do that? Because they recognized that Jesus was claiming not just to be the one that was promised to come, but also God himself, equal with the Father, sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. And one last stop from the reading Nick read for us a moment ago. Uh, a little earlier in the story, Jesus was talking with the Jewish leaders there again. And he said, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and he was glad. And they responded, you're not even 50 yet. How in the world could you have seen Abraham? Like, you're obviously not old enough for that. And, and then Jesus replies, verily I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. And at this, they picked up stones to stone him. Why? Because they knew what he was claiming. To, to have been present during the life and the times of Abraham, and not only that, to also be equal to God himself. I am who I am is what God revealed his name to be later to Moses. And, and Jesus is saying, that very same God that your forefathers worshipped in the wilderness, who delivered them from Egypt, brought them into the promised land, that's me. I am equal with the Father. The Father and I are one. And for that, he deserved death, unless it was true. Maybe you're familiar with the author C.S. Lewis, right? Great author, also British. I'm on a roll with the British guys today. I don't know why. But um, he once described this. Um, and he himself was an atheist at first, a skeptic, and then came to believe in Jesus after he studied it. And he said, you know, if you look at the teachings of Jesus in his life, you can come up with only three conclusions, right? Um, he's either a liar, and what he's saying here is just not true. And if that were to be the case, then what we'd expect is if he claimed to be able to do miracles like rising from the dead, he just couldn't. Right? He's either a liar, um, but, but then he rose from the dead, and 500-some people saw him as eyewitnesses, and their stories were widely spread. So, okay, the next one is he's crazy. He's a lunatic. He's either a liar or he's a lunatic because normal people don't say stuff like this, right? But then again, he performed miracles. He spoke with wisdom and power, and people devoted their lives to him and continue to to this day. He's either a liar or he's a lunatic. And do you know the last one? Or he's Lord. He is who he says he is. He can do what he says he can do, and that includes being able to defeat death to bring life to all who trust in him. And, and he promises to return from his heavenly throne where he sits now uh, to redeem and restore this world, including you. Friends, what we're looking at is an audacious claim that if it weren't found to be true throughout secular history and it weren't consistently pointed to and declared to be true in scripture would be the most ridiculous thing in the world. And yet, we know that it is true because we know this very same Jesus. We've met him in the waters of baptism we're fed by him through his body and blood in communion. He speaks to us through his word to this day. And what he tells us is all of these things that are claimed about him are true. We can study it. We can test it. We can bank our lives on it. And we can also tell our family and our friends the same. And so our hope and prayer throughout the series is that you'd be strengthened and encouraged, built up in your faith, and then given some tools to be able to share that with others as well. As you process what you're hearing today, we have two here in practice questions, and we invite you to reflect on this, whether you're on your own or with you're with others. If you're with somebody, maybe share an answer to one or both of these. Do you find it hard to believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Why or why not? And a second question, because Jesus himself claims to be God, 
What difference should that make in your life as you become more like him? So tackle one or both of those questions. Take a couple minutes, and then we'll continue our worship in just a moment.